In August of 1903, a series of short scientific films premiered at the Alhambra Music Hall in Leicester Square, London. This billed itself as The Unseen World, including titles such as The Frog, His Webbed Foot, and The Circulation of His Blood, The Freshwater Hydra, and The Circulation of Protoplasm of the Canadian Waterweed. With such exciting, interesting titles, it was no wonder that the crowds of early 1900s London were swept off their feet and moved to generic excitement at these different films. But what really set them all apart and what really excited them was a short little film called Cheese Mites. And if you're like me, you might love cheese, but if you're not like me, you try to ignore the fact that there are cheese mites on your cheese. Well, darn it, I'm here to set the record straight. Not only are cheese mites on your cheese, they're an integral part of the creation of that cheese. And if you want to have some tasty, tasty Stilton, or some Brie, or if you're really adventurous, some Kasu Marzu, then you better stay tuned because we're going to go in depth into the world of entomophagy because when it really comes down to it, lobster is just the cockroach of the sea. cultures, specifically the Western cultures, seem to have an aversion to the idea of eating an insect, but this hasn't always been the case. It's not just the rare oddity that you'll see someone going to Thailand or parts of Southeast Asia and they find some grasshoppers or maybe even a deep fried tarantula and try that out. The idea of eating insects and other arthropods has been around for as long as humans and our primate ancestors have existed. If you go back to ancient Rome, you should look at the writings of Pliny the Elder, who wrote of the Roman aristocracy's love of beetle larvae. They would rear these larvae on a diet of flour and wine, which supposedly made them extra tasty. Even Aristotle got in on the action when he was describing the best ways to procure the tastiest cicada, as he called them, larvae, which we would call nymphs today. And these, uh, these larvae would then be consumed and possibly even have aphrodisiac-like effects. Now, if we look at ancient, uh, in ancient China, from about 2500 to 2000 BCE, we see a growing industry of silkworm pupae being reared to be consumed in certain parts of China. We even have a number of examples of Native Americans among some of the plain areas where they had a tradition of digging large trenches and filling them with some sort of material that would be used to catch grasshoppers and other locusts. These critters would be trapped after the individuals would set small fires which would cause the grasshoppers and other critters to move towards those trenches where they would become stuck and then they could be collected, killed, and, uh, and consumed later on. And for those who are the more biblically inclined, we look at the Old Testament, which of course pertains to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, where we have the designation of certain arthropods as being 
appropriate acceptable foods. So your locusts, which would be an adult grasshopper, a winged grasshopper, are kosher and acceptable to eat uh, during uh, whenever you want if you're keeping kosher. There's also reference in the book of Exodus, which talks about a product called manna from heaven. And this might sound ooh and exotic. What it actually was is the honeydew secreted by aphids. You all know aphids, right? Those little tiny bulbous critters that are out there on your roses and all your tomatoes and your plants. They will, as part of their biological processes, excrete liquid sweet honeydew. And that is manna from heaven. So lick them if you want, it's up to you. If you do, please uh, please report back. I'm curious as to what that actually tastes like. And if you want to go back even further, analysis of coprolites, which is fossilized poop from the Ozark Mountains, shows the remnants of ants, beetle larvae, ticks, mites, and other critters present in the poop. So this indicates that this is not just incidental consumption of insects, which is what we do now, well, most of us do now, just incidentally consuming different little critters as parts of our food and not even thinking about it. This is the intentional consumption of insects and other arthropods, which we call entomophagy. Now, when I say incidental, I am talking about things like those cheese mites. So when I was taking an acrology course a couple of years ago, I decided to go to a store, which will not be named, but would, if I decided to go there, take my entirety of my paycheck and give me nothing really in return. Uh, I went there because I thought, well, hey, they have some artisanal cheeses. I will try this out. And I decided to get some Stilton, Stilton being one of the ones that is definitely dependent upon the presence of cheese mites. So I thought I would maximize my uh, chances of getting some little critters on my food. So I went there and looking at the different cheeses, looking at the different Stiltons and some other ones that look particularly stinky and thinking to myself, wonder which one's better. So I was handling the different blue Stiltons and all that. And the guy behind the counter asked if I was looking for anything in particular and he, if he could help me. And I thought to myself, do I really, do I really want to tell you what I am looking for? I didn't. I was nice. I was polite and I had to get back to class. So I just said Stilton, something that looks like it's nice and ripe. And he helped me out and I procured this nice Stilton. And sure enough, when we got it under a microscope, it was crawling with the gorgeous little bitty critters called Tyrophagus casei, the, uh, the cheese mite. And those particular little guys are essential for the growth and culture of Stilton and other cheeses. So when did this shift occur? We look at our closest primate relatives, bonobos and chimpanzees, and they make tools that they use to procure insects, termites, ants, etc., and then consume those. We look at our ancestors, our, our ancestors' poop, and we see that they were indeed consuming, presumably intentionally, a number of different insects. And we look at humans around the globe and the minority of us don't intend to consume insects on a regular basis. That's right, the minority of us. So when did this shift happen? 
And though we're not entirely sure why, we do know this occurred approximately about 10,000 years ago. This is the same time that humans are making the shift from being hunter-gatherers and more nomadic to being more sedentary and being dependent upon plant and animal-based agriculture. So our relationship at that time with insects and with other arthropods changes, where once we might have been collecting grasshoppers to consume them, we're now worried about these creatures coming in and destroying our food stores. And not just stored crops in silos, I'm talking about an entire field could be completely devastated by a swarm of locusts. And even our cattle and our sheep could be destroyed by a plague of insects that may attack or infest them in some way. So you have to imagine this has a profound effect on the collective psyche of early human groups that are dealing with the environment and the creatures in the environment in a new way, in a, in a way that has more threats than just you as an individual, but can be very detrimental to your entire community. But it's been 10,000 years, you're saying, right? So why is it that we, we know these things, we can control these things now? We don't have the same relationship and fear of them as we once did, for the most part. So why haven't we, why haven't we become insectivorous and embraced entomophagy again? Well, the reality is we have, we just don't think about it because we have become accustomed to the idea of one type of arthropod being acceptable and tasty, uh, whereas another is not. So at the beginning of this episode, I started with a little joke that the lobster is just the cockroach of the sea. And that's generally speaking, very true. Uh, the lobsters are crustaceans, which are arthropods. They are just as closely related to a grasshopper as say a beetle or a spider or a harvestman. Now many of you, if not all of you, cannot imagine yourself eating a spider or a scorpion, but you could picture yourself eating a lobster or some shrimp. I used to be a big fan of shrimp myself, not so much lobster or crab, but you know, to each their own. I. I, I'll admit, I still have trouble with the idea of eating something like a, a cockroach. I, I can't imagine it. Uh, I have consumed crickets and waxworms, but there's a line I've been culturally predisposed to not want to cross. Maybe there will come a time when I am able to do so, much like there was a time I was terrified of spiders and now I have a pet spider named Shaka Khan. I overcame that cultural conditioning for the most part, and perhaps I will go the next few steps and be able to consume a, a deep fried seasoned tarantula. Maybe. Mm, maybe. Nutrition wise, insects are a spectacular source of something like protein. When we live on a planet that is running out of area for large amounts of livestock and cultivation of plant protein sources, the idea of cultivating and having insect agriculture building up is a very smart idea. If you look at something like the adults or larval stages of beetles, your coleoptera, just by mass and protein content, they have around 23 to 66% protein, depending on the life stage and species of insect within that, that order of coleoptera. 
That can even go up to, for the Odonata, your dragonflies and damselflies, anywhere from 46 to 65% protein. Let's talk specifics. How about your crickets? An adult cricket can have, when you get to 100 grams of fresh, fresh mass, the adult crickets will have 8 to 25 grams of protein. Your locusts and grasshoppers will have 14 to 18 grams of protein. Let's compare that with, with cow. With raw beef, you have 19 to 26 grams of protein. Or even looking at the arthropod cousins, we have shrimp with about 13 to 27 grams of protein per 100 grams of mass. And you're looking at your lobster with 17 to 19 grams. For someone who is getting their protein content from crops that are grown for that purpose, you're going to be risking uh, a lack of certain amino acids, specifically lysine and tryptophan, and even threonine. When you look at insects and you look at the amino acid profiles of them, they have very high content of these different amino acids. Some have like the Saturnid uh, larvae, Saturnid species, these are your lunamaws as an example. They have a lysine content higher than 100 milligrams, 100 milligram amino acid per 100 grams of crude protein. Now, this sounds amazing. We also need to keep in mind that someone's not going to sit there and just eat a big bowl of silkworm pupae, right? Most people don't sit there and eat a big bowl of ground hamburger. And people don't sit there and eat a bowl of soybeans, right? We have diverse diets. So it's difficult to make uh, educated guesses when we don't know the exact distribution of these different food profiles that we're, that people consume. But what we do know is if we were supplementing with insects and other arthropods as protein and other nutrition sources, this would be taking up less land, require less inputs into the process of growing these creatures, and they would have a much lower net negative impact on the environment than either cattle, or any of your agricultural grain crops. The ideal, obviously, is to have a blending of all of these. We can't all eat the same foods at the same time and follow the same dietary habits. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, fine, you've convinced me. I'm going to go out and buy some cricket bars and make some cricket flour and some sweet and sour stir-fried silkworm pupae and I'm going to serve that to my friends and family for the next holiday. Great. I am absolutely amazed and touched that you are swayed by my very, very logical argument. So let's talk food because I love food. I love cheese. If, even if the cheese mites were a problem, there's no way I could stop eating cheese because cheese is amazing. And we all know lobster is an arthropod and crab and your shrimp and all of that is just, it's no different. It is just the cockroach and the crickets living in the salt water. But what are some insect related delicacies or foods that maybe, maybe we should take a look at or that have some strong cultural significance? Well, one of my favorites, which I think I briefly mentioned earlier, is something called Kasu Marzu. Kasu Marzu is a Sardinian sheep milk cheese, Sardinia being an autonomous region in Italy. And this traditional cheese, it's made much like your standard cheese that you get. You have those large rounds that are sealed up, but and, and you start the process of, of fermentation for your cheese. And then they stick them outside in these barn things and they crack them open and they wait and this lovely cheese as you may have guessed will attract a little critter called the 
cheese skipper, Pyophilia casei. Now, if you remember, Tyrophagus casei was the cheese mite. Pyophilia casei would be the cheese skipper, so casei, cheese. Hey, Pyophilia is a small fly species, a diptera species, that is attracted to items that have a high fat content and go through a process of decomposition and fermentation. These flies are attracted and lay their eggs, much like, you know, other certain things that are decomposing that attract flies to lay their eggs. And the eggs uh, eventually hatch and the larvae feast on this cheese. And it's believed that this cheese is only good, is only great, if the larvae are still wriggling and writhing, just as Gollum would want. The cheese becomes very soft, almost liquid-like. It's served smeared on a piece of moist flatbread, and to some, it's believed to have aphrodisiac-like qualities. This cheese has actually been banned by the EU due to health concerns, but some changes in methods of preparation that have been developed since 2005 at the University of Sassari have developed a more hygienic approach to making this cheese. And you don't have to have, uh, you don't have the same worries that you did with some of the more uh, early traditional methods of preparation of this cheese. In some parts of the world, the pupae and eggs of certain ant species are considered quite tasty and very flavorful and are often harvested for use in cooking. In Japan, you can go and get yourself some nice ramen filled with lovely seasonings and flavorings and how however they make ramen, as well as insects as part of the dish. Herbs seasoned and fried tarantulas, crickets, grasshoppers, and a number of other species are commonly found in parts of Southeast Asia. And if you happen to be in the UK, specifically if you're in Wales, go and check out Pembrokeshire Farm, a nice little restaurant where you can get mealworm and grasshopper burgers, maybe even some bug wellington or some mixed bug and chestnuts wrapped in a nice fluffy crepe pastry. Not to be outdone, Texas, specifically Houston, has queso del rancho where you can get a grilled prime Angus ribeye served with an ant mole and some cocktails garnished with different little worms, mealworms, etc. And as we round off our little trip around the world, let's go back to London where that 1903 little film series premiered where we have Archipelago, a nice little place which is after my heart, not only because it has chocolate-covered locusts and little blinis topped with coconut cream, vodka jelly, and caramelized mealworms. It's my hope, and I'm sure the hope of many entomologists out there, that someday insects will make a comeback, that they will be embraced as a revolutionary food source that's actually not that revolutionary. It's a very old, time-honored tradition, and one that could actually be very beneficial to the environment. Even if you think it's a bit weird to eat cheese filled with little larvae, or the idea of eating caramelized mealworms or a deep-fried tarantula, it may be odd, but there are a number of ways that we may not have even discovered yet to fully embrace the diversity that we could consume insects and make it not just palatable, but pleasurable too. So I'm gonna leave some resources, some interesting sites and readings that you can check out. And I do thoroughly encourage you to check these out and to review them into, just for a moment, try and check our biases for a bit. I'm guilty of it too. It's very hard to get that, get the mind over that hump, but I think it's worth it. Have you ever tried to eat an insect? Would you like to and just aren't sure where to start? Send me an email, I'd love to hear about it. 
bugsbloodandbones at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, also Bugs, Blood, and Bones. And uh, please share this podcast with your friends on Facebook, wherever you happen to be. And I will love to chat with you. We can discuss not just all the wonderful ways that insects might taste lovely, but all of the wonderful ways in which insects impact our lives. So hit that subscribe button. Leave a nice review if you're feeling up for it, even if it's just a little star rating. And tune in in two weeks when we're back with another episode of the Bugs, Blood, and Bones podcast. I'd like to thank the Underscore Orchestra for their amazing music once again. And remember, kids, keep calm and carry on.